You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 156. On today's show, Amy Deluxe interviews Cindy Lowe of Red Velvet Events. They talk about starting a successful experiential agency in Austin, Texas, keeping that business alive during the pandemic, and the future of events in a post-COVID era. It has been a few months since this interview was recorded, and just this past month, Cindy acquired Strong Events, a 30-year-old event company in Austin, Texas, and so now she has Red Velvet and Strong Events. Now, if I sound different to you today, it's because I don't have a microphone this week. I'm using my AirPods. I'm out in La Mirada, California, lighting beautiful The Carol King Musical. It's opening Saturday, and it's going to run for a month. So if you're in the greater Los Angeles area and you're wanting something to do, maybe check out the show. Also, I just lit my first show at Arizona State University, uh, where I'm now a lighting professor. That show is Anthropocene, which is a devised piece about the climate crisis. It's going to be running for the next two weekends. So if you're in Phoenix, maybe go check out Anthropocene. All right, I'm going to return at the end of the interview with some takeaways. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Amy Deluxe. I'm stepping in for Ethan this round. We're joined by Cindy Lowe of Red Velvet. We're recording this May 22nd, 2023. Cindy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. I've known you for years. We worked together a long, long time ago, and you've done incredible things since then. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah. Thank you again, Amy, for having me, and it's great to join you this May. It's It's been flying by this year. So high level about me is that I did not start in the, this industry 20 years ago. In fact, I was in tech, um, and I pivoted. So very similar to how COVID kind of changed everyone to kind of reconsider their careers, 9-11 was the one that did it for me. And uh, I, so I decided 20 years ago to basically take a chance and dive right into the events and experiential world. And I have no regrets whatsoever. And uh, so I know we're going to talk a little bit more about all that uh, more to come. But my background is that I did grow up in Texas, though. So a lot of people are always surprised by that since uh, they don't meet a lot of <laughs> a lot of Asians that grew up in Texas. <laughs> Which part of Texas? Did Houston. You Okay. Yeah. Right down the road. Yep. Right down the road. (laughs) Awesome. Um, So what is a live event that you would like to experience as an audience member or a piece of art that you love? Oh, so if I had to say about a live event, I'm not going to name exactly like a brand or whatnot, but I can tell you what I find fascinating. I think in the experiential world, it's when it can capture, uh, capture all five senses And without me realizing, that's why it's called an immersive event. You know, it's that it appeals to me from a sight, a sound, and I'm just curious of the smell and and it brings them all together in one space. And it makes me actually think positively of the brand and makes me curious about to learn more. And to me, that is the perfect and ideal idea idyllic in-person event, because that means you are trying to play off all the senses and you're trying to appeal to the, to people, each, each of us react differently. You know how, like some people say I'm more visual or I'm more auditory. It's, it's understanding all of that. And to me, I am always wanting to be kind of surprised by brands and how they activate. 
I love that. Yeah. And that's very inclusive to bring yes. in that not everybody experiences things the same way. Exactly. That's, I love that. So are you good or bad with money? I'm actually pretty good. Now, some people might say I'm a little too generous. Maybe my family might say that. But in general, I would say I'm very good with money because of the fact that I am a saver. Uh, and I like, I actually do love numbers. I love spreadsheets. I'm a nerd that way. And, uh, and yeah, so I would say overall, I'm good. Were you always a saver or, or was that taught to you? Um, I would say it definitely was taught to me, but here's how it was taught to me. We grew up as like my parents were immigrants from uh, Hong Kong. So it, it wasn't like we came in with a lot of money, but also at the same time, my parents didn't exactly like hold back from me being able to like enjoy life. Now, Maybe I didn't have the the most you know designer clothes or or had a had a car right away when I you know could drive, but they definitely tried to give me as much as they could reasonably afford and the best education and the best experience as possible. And and in those situations, that's when I could tell there was a difference in life if you have money and don't have money, because we were friends. What we had family friends that were much wealthier than we were. So I was exposed to a young age of what luxury was. And, but I also recognized where we were in the, the food chain, if that, so to speak, you know? So I think that yeah, kind that of motivated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's, you know, that was a lot what the rich dad, poor dad book was about. Yes. I read yeah. that book too. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of my entry to, to pursuing financial independence. Nice. For me. Nice. That's great. That's great. Um, so I want to talk about red velvet. So yeah. When and why did you get started with Red Velvet? How did you come to make that that company? So as mentioned, it was a pivot. Now, let's go back in times 20 years ago. 9-11 had just happened. I didn't understand the way of the world in the sense that events had been affected by 9-11 outside of New York City. Like I understood in New York, time had frozen. People were still recovering, trying to rebuild the city physically and emotionally. But, you know, I was down here in Texas. Now, what was happening, though, in my own mind was I was trying to figure out what could I do professionally, uh, because it wasn't that I didn't love, I didn't, it wasn't that I was unhappy with my job. It's just that I wasn't in love with my job. You know, um, it was, it did give me financial independence, speaking of uh, my first uh, professional job out of school, but I felt like there was more to than just making money at that time. So I did ask around to my friends, what do you think I should do? And many of them were like, you should start an events company or do events. So naturally, my instinct was, okay, then I'm going to go work for an events company. But remember, I mentioned I didn't have any formal background. And at that time, no one was hiring because, again, everything kind of had um, stopped in the events world, very similar to COVID. But I didn't understand that. I I thought, again, it was just only in New York or New Jersey area. You know, I didn't think it was also taking place in Texas. So after three rejections, I asked those people that rejected me, I go, what was it that wouldn't let you hire me? And when they told me it was lack of experience, I, again, in my stubbornness, I took that as, okay, if I come back with experience a year later, you'll hire me. So with my business degree, I was like, okay, how hard could it be? I will start a business and I will show you this experience a year later. Needless to say, this has been 20 years ago. I never went back to applying for that job. So this was a very, what I do call a happy accident because to be honest, since my dad was an entrepreneur growing up, I had already run his businesses since English was not his first language. So I knew how hard it was to run a business. And that's why I had no desire to do my own. I had no, no problem working for someone, you know, like, you know, how some people are very determined, like I'm going to be 
independent. I'm going to do my own thing because I want to be my own boss. That never ran through my head because I knew how hard it was for my dad to run his business. And, and I just didn't, I just, yeah, in my head, I was like, I'm okay. I don't have to do that. But clearly, I guess it was already a little bit ingrained in me. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it for sure. It's so interesting too, because I actually um, moved to Austin. You're in Austin. I moved to Austin yeah. in the aftermath of 9-11 as well. Ah. My graphic design degree. And I could not, I kept getting rejected from, not kept. I mean, there wasn't that, it was much smaller in 2003 yeah. in Austin. There weren't a lot of graphic design agencies. And I, you know, I put in for a couple and uh, everybody was just uh, downsizing. And so yeah. I, I accidentally also happy accident got into uh, staging and events um, awesome. as a filler, as a filler while I like figured out graphic design, but then here we are now. So. Yeah, exactly. It's about who you meet again in life. It's always about who you meet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I mean, it sounds like obviously it was a challenging environment just to begin with, but once you finally did get traction yeah. with Red Velvet, you know, were, what were some of the just direct challenges as far as getting it off the ground and 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 getting deals and getting employees? Like, what did that what did that look like? Was there a long period where were you just working alone, or did you, yeah. you know, when did you bring people in, and how did you start to grow it out? Yeah, so. I definitely, it was by myself. So it was me, myself, and I for the first uh, three years. I did try to bring in some contractors at the beginning. And honestly, you know what pushed me to finally bring in my first full-time employee was because I was pregnant with my daughter. And my husband, um, at that time, he was like, Cindy, look, I know you think you can run this business still, you know, after our daughter's born and everything. But realistically, if you really want to scale this business, you probably need to look and invest into full-time people. But at that time, we were only making enough to really pay me. And so I had to make a choice. And so I decided to pause my pay since I was fortunate enough that I we weren't relying on my pay. My pay was to kind of pay for the nanny or to pay for like if we had a vacation. And so I was definitely, uh, my my salary at that time was not essential. Now, keep in mind, I did give up a very lucrative salary when I pivoted. And so I, I really did want to go back to that period of time. Eventually I just, I just had patience. And, um, then when we finally did hire our first time employee, I, what I underestimated, I got so lucky. My first full-time employee was amazing. Then when we started to scale, I quickly learned very fast of what I am good at and what I'm not good at. And what I am very good at is I'm a very good visionary. I'm a very good doer. I'm a very good project manager but I'm not necessarily the best manager. And here's why. I'm quite impatient. And I know that I have very lofty goals. And sometimes um, if someone like I'm willing to teach, but if someone is not catching on as fast, I tend to get a little frustrated and I'll just do it myself. And so I quickly realized that I, in order for me to scale the business, I've got to find someone else that's going to compliment me in that area. And to tell you the truth, it took me until I had my second baby and my sister joining the team before I had that person to compliment me. So we had, a, we, we struggled for a little while up and down. That's amazing. How did you kind of realize that about yourself? Cause that's not, everyone has that kind of personal insight. Well, well, um, I mean, anytime you fail something, at least for me. Okay. Anytime I fail something, I do look internally first at me. I'm like, okay, because it's either the environment or you, Cindy. Like, let's be honest, okay? And and I and I recognize again where my patience is and where or lack of patience. And and I, I know 
I like to think I'm pretty self-aware of, I know where my faults are. Now, sometimes it hurts when someone t- reconfirms it, you know, I mean, it's just, we're all humans, but, um, but I, I was so desperate. I think at that time to really want to scrow and scale, I did lean on my husband and lean on my CEO group and, and ask them, what do you think is my problem? Like, I can't seem to keep some of these employees. And, and again, I kept referencing my first one because she was amazing. But then the reason why I lost her is because she, she, uh, her husband got, took a job outside of Austin and, you know, we were a hundred percent, there was no such thing as remote doing events, you know, because after all, we were growing so fast in Austin and it was just turnover after turnover. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And honestly, it came down to me. And, and again, I, I know I have good intentions, but also if someone couldn't keep up with me, it was not a good fit because I didn't have that kind of patience to train people. Right. Right. Yeah. Like like it's one thing if they're smart enough to keep up with me. And, and again, that's what I mean. Like it was, um, I, I did not recognize. And and I thank her to this day on our first employee. I go, I really underestimated. I thought, I thought everyone was like you. And then I realized that no, not everyone's like you. Like if I could bring her back, I would, you know what I mean? Like I just didn't realize. And then that's why she became my model of like, okay, everyone needs to meet her bar because clearly there are people that exist out there. It's just that I got to figure out how to find them all. Yes. And that's hard for sure. And, but it's, it goes to say a lot because who knows where you would be if you didn't recognize that you needed to make those adjustments because you have how many staff now? Right now we have 16 full-time, but we're trying to get back up to, we were pre-pandemic, we're 27. It's it's been a long road to recovery. I mean, I'm very optimistic we'll get there. It's just been longer than I thought (laughs) in transparency. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and so, you know, you've, you've gone through a number of transitions now. And the, at 9-11 and then with yep. the pandemic and, and even in between, I think during the pandemic and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started a transition from moving Red Velvet from events to more of an experiential agency. Yeah. Can you talk about why did you do that? And, and what does that mean for people yeah. that understand? So what, first, let me explain what experiential means, because a lot of people don't usually use that term unless they're in the marketing world, or if they're really truly in the brands to consumer world or events like high-end events. Experiential means when, like, for example, if you own an iPhone and you've been inside an Apple store, if I even just covered the Apple logo and you walked into the store, nine out of 10 people would know that that's an Apple store. And why is that? And it's, it's, it's because they've been very intentional with the glass enclosure, the, the clean tables, the products on the, on the desk, and, and they've just been very intentional about every design element. And that's what we're essentially doing with events, is that when we're designing it for any brand, whether it be a consumer product brand, a tech brand, an automotive, we want to understand what is it about your brand that is different from your competitors, and how do we design that event from the time they receive the invitation to the time that they arrive to the physical event or even digital event, that they know that they're there for that brand. And that's what experiential means. It means that without me even showing the logo, okay, it's not about logo placement. It's about without me showing the logo, you already know that that is the brand. And that takes a lot of intentionality. So why did we pivot? Well, Part of it selfishly was I was getting a little bored and, and I hate to even say it that way because I love events. Okay. 
But it, when it got to a point where clients would just come to us for a checklist, because we had an amazing team of doers. Like we finally got our formula right, Amy, by the way, like it took us a while, but we got it right. And we were hiring amazingly smart people. They could keep up with the clients. They were smart. They got it. They understood design. They, they knew when they needed to reach out to partners. We were getting great traction and we were growing, growing, growing. I mean, heck, it was, it was so hard to even keep up. But at one point I realized they were just calling us because they had a checklist of things they wanted us to do. And the things that got me excited and out of bed honestly, were first, they came to us first with a problem. Like, hey, my brand is brand new to the market and it's very cluttered, but I don't know how to stand out. Like I I want to be the cool brand. I want to be the brand that's known for it's being eco-conscious or I want the brand that cares, you know, like, like how do we stand out? And that is the part I love. It's solving the problem with the team and through a creative lens, building it into a real live event. And now digital. Again, I, I should never like discredit digital. We I admit we do more in person, but digital does matter still because if you don't follow social media or having some sort of digital presence, it you're you're missing out as well, you know? Yeah, amazing. So and when we first met, we worked yeah. together on Lounge 88. Yes, that was so I awesome. That was the first year that F1 came to Austin, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so at that point, how long had you been um, doing Red Velvet? Oh my gosh. I think, okay. So if I remember correctly, if that was the first year of F1, that means I was either only seven years in the business. Yeah. Because was that 2009? I think so. Okay. Yeah. We started in 2002. So only seven years in. Yeah. So very new still. And, you know, I was in my lighting bubble yeah. and there lot of people on a lot of teams. I mean, we turned that place into yes, the high end. And well, yes. what I was going to say is, I mean, that's when you were doing events before you were doing the experiential. Correct. Agent. And, that, and but that, so, but that's a great yeah. example of experiential. So he came to us and he goes, have you ever been to any F1 parties? And I said, no, because this is our my first F1 heck period since it's coming to Austin. He goes, well, let me explain to you. When you go to like Dubai or when you go to Singapore, there's these yacht parties that they're known for because they basically convert a yacht into a party. He goes, since we don't have yachts in Austin, what can we convert into a high-end nightclub? And I want it to be my own brand and I'm going to sell tickets to it. And I said, oh, I gotcha. And so with Bobby, who I think is Bobby, who's the one who brought you in, right, Amy? Yes. Um, I worked with Bobby and I said, okay, Bobby, I have this great idea. We're going to convert this place and at that time, it was um, the old La Zona Rosa, LZR. And again, it was already out of commission as La Zona Rosa, but people didn't know that yet. But we we had permission to basically build out anything we needed to make this high-end bar for the weekend. And the reason how I convinced him to do Lounge 88 was because of the fact that I go, okay, 88 is lucky in a lot of languages. Um, Lounge 88 was not trademark yet. Like again, if this had done as well as it should have, he wanted to do it in all the other cities. In the end, he could only do it in Austin because sadly, um, that he was, there's other things outside that I won't talk about on this podcast that caused him to not be able to replicate because honestly, we had a great logo, a great brand, and we had created some assets that he could have traveled with to all these different F1 parties. It was um, incredible. Yes, but you saw, you remember like the the magic uh, or the disco ball that was custom cut to the 88. Yes. The 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 whole digital the all the assets on the LED screens. I mean, it was just 
perfect. So was, this, was this a moment where, because I was going to say, like, it felt to me like an experience more than just an event. A hundred percent. But this wasn't the moment we actually had. Yeah. Sorry. It was like, early. It was much earlier. No, no, it's okay. It was, it seems like it was earlier. So, but was that something that, you know, because you had that experience that maybe stuck with you, yes. that you wanted to create events in this more experiential way? Correct. Every year. So I'll tell you where it really started. South by Southwest. So in 2007-ish, South By kind of gave us some opportunities through sponsors to be like, hey, we want to do these things called houses. Like, what can you do? And every year I kind of got maybe one or two projects under my belt. And and that's what kind of built up the reputation. Because so every year I would have something creative to be able to kind of tie my brand to. And it just, the more I did that, I was like, ooh, this is exciting. But again, as our team kind of got built up, I still had to take on what I will call traditional events because at the end of the day, we have to pay our, pay our employees. And so, so you have to close, you have to do so many events a year in order to pay the bills. And so what I would love to do, is, I said, I go, let me focus on just experiential now, because that is honestly what gets me excited, gets the team excited but it's a lot harder than I thought in full transparency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are there any, um, brands or, or things that, that you've done that you can speak to that maybe stand out? Oh gosh. Okay. So well, one that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of this. It has evolved over the years. We, um, we worked with the misses at the time. It was a band. It was a female band. Oh, I, and, I did lights for them one time. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. So now they converted <laughs> because now they're a nonprofit called TKC, which is the kindness campaign. Um, it's evolved over the years, but I, I love telling the story again, this, and this was a group effort. This was not just me. I was definitely more on the event side and they, they had a marketing agency. They had, they also had videographers. So, but basically the idea was how do we get the, 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 the spreading of the kindness to, to go, to, to, to go viral. And the concept was the mirror. And the idea was you look in this mirror and you have words of affirmation coming at you because again, as a woman, as a female, especially, we are extremely hard on ourselves. We look at it and we're like, oh my gosh, more white hair. I've got bags under my eyes. And this mirror, because we would take information again at check-in point, what they didn't know is we like, okay, Cindy is coming up. She's the one in yellow. FYI, this is what you know. She's a mother of two. She has, she has a husband. She also uh, works a lot and she has a team, a great team behind her. And then the mirror would then reaffirm like, Cindy, I don't think you hear it enough, but you are enough. You do so much for the Austin community. You do so much for, for your children. And I just want to say you are enough. And because these women didn't know what was to expect of this mirror, they just were told, we've got this experience in the mall. We'd love for you to try it out. It takes more, no more than like five minutes. Would you mind? And then a few of them, of course, we did plant a few extras. We actually had the human come out from behind and it was a, maybe someone that we flew in that was a family member that like, so we had these moments. Yes. And, and, and again, and that is what I mean by experiential and it. And that is the cool part of the job because we came up with all these concepts together of like, how do we make this truly meaningful? And now what I'm proud to say is I'm, I just learned a few weeks ago, this mirror is still on tour to, to high schools and elementary schools because we're helping the kids at a young age recognize what being bullied feels like and to not do that so that they have self-confidence as a, as a kid. Yeah. It's so important. That's yes. incredible. So, yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. 
I love that. Wonderful. Well, I just want to take a really quick break uh, to mention the Artistic Finance Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show, consider supporting Artistic Finance on Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes on a private podcast feed that you can add to your podcast player. It includes early releases and bonus episodes. Another unique thing about Artistic Finance, speaking of meaningful things, is that 25% of income goes back out to other live event workers and arts nonprofits. If any of that sounds appealing to you, please consider supporting Artistic Finance. You can sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. Thank you in advance. And now back to the show. You know, live events and and even experiential, especially since that's even harder than live events, as you're finding out, it uh, it all took a massive hit during the pandemic. Yes. So how was Red Velvet impacted? How did you get through it? And yeah. what kind of kept you going? So in the short, we obviously are still standing, which is great. But there were several things why we were still standing. The team at that very moment that we did have did lean into digital. We taught ourselves. We also, in fact... Uh, try to come up with even new uh, services. Like, for example, we sold t-shirts for a little while. Our creative teams created the t-shirts and we sold them on Shopify. But we quickly learned that there was a supply chain issue on t-shirts. So we had to stop that. Uh, we even were helping people rebrand their websites because, again, we have creative. So we we were using their digital tools to be able to, you know, just bring them any income and revenue. We also did these things called boxes. And what that means is if the client was willing to change their in-person event to a digital event online, we used the money that we initially had planned for, whether it was a party or you know food and beverage or some sort of swag, to create a custom boxing experience. So when they when they got shipped out to their home and they opened it up, it was more than just like a branded water bottle. It was an experience that tied back in. Um, and then we even did some higher end ones, which went along with like a, a high end cu- custom cooking class or maybe a cocktail mixing class, et cetera. So we totally leaned into that. So I'm very grateful for the team of that. The other short of it is that we did qualify for two PPP loans because we did keep the team intact and that helped us through. And I and back to your question earlier, I'm a saver. So we did have some savings. Now here is the downside. If I had known how long the pandemic was going to last, I probably should have gone with the advice that everyone in the business world gave me on day one of March, 2020, but I refused to listen to them. They had said, hey, Cindy, figure out how long you really need the full team, but you should rec- we recommend you start laying off people right away because you don't know how long it's going to take to bring them back. But I was confident. See, I, I really thought genuinely, because based on the media news and based on just everyone you know, telling me what was going on, I really thought that we would more or less be half open back to by September. And because we had savings, and I didn't even know about the PPP loan at that time, but I, I I was confident that we would have enough to carry us through to September of 2020. But as you know, we did not reopen as a country in 2020, September 2020. So that was the gamble I took wrong. So sadly, unfortunately, on December 31st, 2020, we officially had to do a layoff of about half the team. Mm. And that happened effective January 1st of 2021. And that t- took some of the team by surprise, even though Every Monday, we had our little talk with the team and explained to them how much cash we had left, how much we had to close. But I think some people were still in a kind of a, again, we were in Texas. Things were sort of open and and it didn't quite resonate. I think some people did not hear the, 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 did not see the worst of the picture. You know what I mean? Like they heard us, but because we had kept everyone still employed, all 27 of us, it didn't, like, it didn't 
really hit them in their head of like, what does this mean if we don't hit our numbers? And because we didn't, we, we, we had such a big gap to still go in 2021. I was like, I have to cut our losses because I don't want to be another full year of this. And then we're completely in the hole. So we made some tough calls. Now, here's what killed me though. The remaining half of the team, they quit. Like we only had six people carry over. And part of that was not, not to, not to, um, it wasn't in, in, um, solidarity. I mean, some might, they were, we made, I made the wrong choice of, I should have openly asked, but see in government terms, you're not supposed to ask which one of what you wants to be laid off. You can't do that. It has to be involuntary, but basically those other people that we had thought wanted to stay on board quit. They, they were already thinking about quitting. And so then, and so then of course we immediately reached back out to the ones that were laid off and sadly only one or two wanted to come back. So we essentially had to bring on a whole new team in 2020, 2021 and 2022 to get back to the size we're at now. And that was honestly our, our worst growing pains because I only had six of us that were the original. And so when you went down to the six unexpectedly, did you immediately hire back? Oh, no, we were trying to hire as quickly as we could, but here was the problem. If, if they, so one, obviously if anyone had not been let laid off, they didn't want to leave their current job because why would they want to shift? Right. You know, like I get it. They don't. Then there were some that were like, I'm honestly exhausted. I have the experience, but I don't want to come back to this. And you're telling me we're going back to in-person because remember vaccines had started to roll out. And I was very transparent that you had to be fully vaccinated. We're going back to live events ASAP. In fact, our first true live event that we produced was May of 2021 for, uh, I want to say it was right under a thousand people. So Mm. it was a big event. You see what I'm saying? Because we were in Texas and, and, and some people didn't want that. And, and I get it. I totally get it because there was so much uncertainty. Um, it just, again, I made some wrong business calls at looking back and, and it's unfortunate because I was trying to maximize how to spread our cash. And Oh, on top of that, we had three people that went on paternity or maternity leave, which we honored the paid maternity paternity leave, which is Great. 12 paid weeks. So it was, yeah. a, a, it was a lot That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good for you for honoring it, but that is definitely, uh, you know, one blow after another, it sounds like financially. Yeah, so, it was. I mean, did you worry? I mean, were you worried about closing doors at that point? Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. But did I let let it on as a team? Uh, no, I couldn't let it on because, oh, absolutely. Every, every day, basically when September 2020 did not turn into half of the events would be back to uh, in person a little bit, basically from there on until I would say end of 2021, I did not stop worrying. I officially stopped worrying when January 2022, I could see that things were going to turn around. Like I was like, okay, I feel like things are coming back. And honestly, we were so small then too, because people had quit and we couldn't hire fast enough that I was like, you know, at this point, at least I can pay my bills and I can, I, oh, and I should mention, I stopped paying myself April of 2020 and I did not pay myself again until January, 2022. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of, uh, C-suite or executives that can But again, it was because I was like, I'd rather keep at least several employees versus paying myself because I I want to keep the team together as much as possible. But again, again, not everyone can see that point of view and they don't, because I'm sure I created, there was quite a few people that were still pretty upset with me if they were on the layoff list or just even how everything was handled. Even though we try to be as transparent as possible, I know 
that it was not easy for anyone. And, yeah. and, um, you know, it's, it's something that I've been able to go to bed at night now, but definitely it worried me between that, those periods, because it's, it was like, I said, the hardest time of all, us running the company. Well, it's incredible that you came out the other side because unfortunately there's not, not all businesses can say oh, that. 100%. I mean, to, I mean, a lot of our competitors switch names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that means, because they sold and they wanted new name and the other one folded. Yeah, no, I get it. Not yeah. a lot came through. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super proud of you if I haven't heard it before. You're an incredible leader, even if you're a bad manager, (laughs) you (laughs) are an incredible leader and a role model and, you know, good for you for sticking with it and and everything you had to do and all the sacrifices. Thank Um, you. I'm glad you guys bounced back and and me too. And I am so grateful. And I really need to give a shout out because at that time we had a leadership team of four and it was a lot of stress on them. I mean, a lot. And I am very, very grateful for them to be able to meet with me because definitely during the height of the pandemic, we were meeting every day just to go over the numbers, to understand how long we had to go before we had to do any any major call. And and so I just, I cannot say enough thank you to them because they did, they definitely had, um, they, they, they wore that stress as well. You know, it wasn't just me. Yeah. So somewhere in the middle of that, you bought a building and renovated it. <laughs> Technically, I bought it right before the pandemic. I know what timing, huh? Like we barely <laughs> were in the building and then the pandemic hit. Like that's what sucked. And I was like, what? So let's talk about that yeah. that whole thing, because you did a very unique design and you don't have any architectural experience, right? No, but I did hire. So this goes back to you, who you work with. I hired an amazing event architect uh, or I'm sorry architect designer, not event architect designer that has both like interior design experience and architect, uh, an actual architect degree. And that's what was nice because he was able to take a lot of my ideas and translate into what, what I wanted, you know? And yeah, so we bought the building technically in fall of 2016. Okay. This is during the height of just everything's going well. We're at, I think at that time, I think we were like 20 employees. We were going, we, again, we're growing up to 27 but we finally moved in May of 2018. So it took a little too long to build out. It should not have taken that long. That part, I hired again, the best architect designer, but unfortunately I I would not say we hired the best um, general contractor. That was a a tough lesson learned. And then I I stepped in to kind of take it to the finish line because I was like, you know what, I'm going to treat it just like an events and we're going to finish this out. (laughs) And we finally moved in end of May of 2018 and then like, you know, March, 2016 or 2020, we had, we actually pre, pre preemptively had already went ahead and told everyone. I remember because since South by canceled on March 6th, I said, you know what guys, we're going to go ahead and shut the office down. So bring home your laptops. If you need to grab your monitor, grab it now. I don't know when the office will reopen, let's say two weeks. Okay. But we'll have Slack. We had to increase our Slack plan because Again, we started using the Slack video and it was just not um, a good enough quality. So we had to increase our Slack quality plan uh, higher just to, to keep us remote you know, for those two weeks. And then, as you all know, we, we were closed a lot longer than two weeks. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> wow. I actually personally started coming back in in May because I was ready. I, my house is not huge and I just needed a little bit more space. It was lonely, though, to come into this big building by myself. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I was there recently with you and just to see it for the first time and then to come back for the annual. Crop crop yes. oil. So that was amazing. And 
What a great supporting community as well. I met so many wonderful people there. So you've definitely clearly put, made an impact on, on the, not just in business, but in the local community Thank as well. You. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So if someone else wanted to start an agency or some type yeah. of creative business, you know, with everything you've been through, what, what would you say? How, what advice would you give? So the very first thing is don't rent office space if you don't have to, because again, what you want to do is you want to keep your overhead costs low as possible. So the things that you should have to invest in are your, your website presence, your social media presence. Uh, I would definitely recommend buying a, a custom domain. It shouldn't be a Gmail just because if you want to be taken seriously, you want to, you want to have a, a landing page where you can call your home. Um, the other is you do need to know how to do numbers. If you are not the numbers person, okay, then you need to partner with someone that is. And what I mean by that is if you don't understand how to read a basic profit and loss sheet out of QuickBooks or even just creating your own, you need to find someone that understands that. At first, you're going to you're going to be just taking money in and you, th- you and you're just going to be like, "Oh, can it pay my bills?" But you really should track it to understand how much expenses do you have going out and how much are you truly taking home. And the other thing, because if you're in the creative space or you're in the services-based business, like we are as an agency, you're going to want an effective time tracker. And what I mean by that is we literally create program IDs for every project we work on. So let's pretend I'm working on a project with you or like we talked about earlier, Lounge 88. I'll create a project ID and I will start tracking it as soon as it starts picking up any momentum. Maybe the first call was just a 30 minute call with the, the, you know, the owner or whatever, that's fine. But then once we start going into sales mode and, and actually negotiating and then the actual contract assigned and then planning mode, you're going to want to know how much time overall did I invest into this one program? And the reason why is because you're going to want to do an analysis post event or post project and find out, was it profitable? And what I mean by that is because oftentimes, and I use this actually example with wedding planners because it's usually the easiest to understand. Wedding planners will be like, oh, $2,000, that's fine. I can I can make it. And I go, really? I go, that's amazing. I'm like, like you must not have had to do much work because $2,000 is, is not enough money for, to get me to, to plan an entire wedding. And, and they go, well, what do you mean? Like, I you know, like my apartment is all that, like, you know, they'll, they'll list out to me their personal expenses and they go, I just need to. And if I do four weddings a weekend, a month, that's, that's $8,000 and that pays all my bills. And I go, okay, that's fair. That's great. But let me explain. So you start tracking, you talk to the client, you go wedding dress shopping with them, you do all these things. And before you know it, you've blown over 200 hours. When you divide that back in, you are not you. You basically are you're you're being paid less than what uh, minimum wage is, and to me that is the problem with with service based businesses. You really need to understand how valuable is your time. And I'm not saying that you should be taking advantage of a client. I'm saying that you just need to know what your value of your time your your time is. And when I first started out, I was so scared to charge anything more than I think thirty five dollars an hour. Remember, this was twenty years ago. But as soon as I got the first year under my belt, when I actually went back to my clients and asked them for feedback, every one of them told me I was charging too little. That showed me one, they cared and they recognized that I was charging too little. So of course I increased my sal- or my uh, hourly rate significantly. But even now to this day, what's funny is I look back and I'm like, wow, I've, I've gone through a bunch of changes because again, you have to know what you're worth. 
and 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 how and that's how you can balance your time and your what you say yes to. And don't you find too that when you did that, that a lot of other things improved as well? Oh, a hundred percent. Because well, here's why: you also find better. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but you do find clients that value you for your time and your expertise, and they're going to be more efficient use. Like right now, I, I they're not going to just ask me to come on a site visit and to, and walk everything and just hang out. They're going to be efficient with their time, which is good. Again, it's not to say I can't be friends with my client, but that's where I draw the line. You know, it's like, this is friend time. This is work time, but I don't want, I don't want to be inefficient. And, and that's the thing that drives me to, to finding that happy medium of what, what, how do we make the most of the time together so that we can get X, Y, Z picked out and then move on and choose our partners and, and get it designed, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything else about Red Velvet or or yourself that you'd like to share? Honestly, I just want to say, if you are curious about what we do, follow us on Instagram. It's Red Velvet Events. Um, if you have feedback, I mean, obviously drop me a note. I'm, I'm very... I'm very connected and I, I I do try to respond to everything. That's probably one of my uh, vices or my my downfalls. But but lately I've been de- de- definitely taking a little longer than usual just because I'm, my head is always in, in another project. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I have really enjoyed everything that you brought to the audience and to me with this conversation. Uh, I'd like to say some takeaways from our conversation that I found really valuable that Cindy shared, practice personal insight to recognize your own weaknesses so that you can outsource them and you basically don't get in your own way. Um, That is something that we all can stand to do. We are human. We all have strengths and weaknesses. So recognize your strengths and utilize those and pass your weaknesses you know, partner with someone who can, who is better where your weaknesses are. Uh, also keep your overhead low yes. and do this. One way to do this is to partner with someone uh, for your accounting. If you don't understand the numbers and if you don't know how to do the profit and loss sheets yourself, partner with somebody because this is the number one way where you can value your time and get paid your worth. So recognizing your value uh, is very important. And I think time and time again, Cindy, you've shown uh, to have patience and then, you know, you get all kinds of wrenches get thrown into our plans that we can't control and to have patience through that uh, and to keep your uh, your eye on the long term vision and persevere uh, through those challenges is is beyond valuable. Yeah. What did you think of today's interview? If you liked it, mention it on the socials, tag artistic finance. Tag Amy Deluxe at Utopia Dreamscape and tag Cindy Lowe and Red Velvet. We would love to hear what you think. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron. It really helps to cover some of the podcast costs. Uh, I've chosen to help Ethan out by becoming a producer of the show. And you can do that as well at patreon.com slash artistic finance. Ethan, our normal host of artistic finance, also told me I had to promote myself during this episode. So if you've enjoyed listening, my name is Amy Deluxe and I am a multidisciplinary designer and consultant. I run Lobo Lux Design, a lighting and system design company that also creates educational marketing materials for the lighting industry, as well as Utopia Dreamscape, a lifestyle brand that believes you have the power to design the life of your dreams because everyone deserves prosperity and I believe in you. You can find all my links and empowerment at my Instagram, link in bio, at utopiadreenscape.com. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. 
that's it for this week's episode. Now, Amy shared some great takeaways, and I want to add some of my own, which is, one, I loved Cindy's penchant of liking live events that use all five senses. You know, I work in theater a lot, and we use sight and sound, but we're not really using taste, smell, or feel uh, sometimes, but mostly not. I think something I actually like about movies is that they don't use all the senses. <laughs> I think sometimes too much uh, senses is overstimulating for me. But I thought that was interesting that Cindy likes, you know, the full immersion experience. Another thing I took away was that Cindy asked why she wasn't hired. And the feedback was you don't have experience. So then, of course, she opens a business to get that experience. But then that just kept going and she never went back to those jobs. But I thought it was good that she asked, hey, why didn't you hire me? I also thought it was interesting that Cindy never wanted to be a business owner. Her father was an entrepreneur, and she thought, no, I don't want to do that. Of course, she didn't end up doing it, but you know, she didn't do it because she wanted to necessarily. Also, Cindy hiring her first worker happened when she had a daughter. That's when she realized that she needed to hire on work. Relevant to me just because you know, having a newborn baby, I'm realizing I don't have time to do a lot of other things. So if you want to get stuff done, you, you have to outsource it. And also that she ended up pausing her salary to pay that first employee. So it's clearly worked out well for her. But, you know, that's a, that's a has to be a tough decision to be like, okay, I'm not going to make any money. <laughs> but you have to do that in order to onboard somebody else and scale up. Another thing was talking about the events that she wanted to work on versus doing traditional events that pay the bills and pay for her employees. You know, just interesting that we all have to make those sort of business decisions of what do I want to do versus what can I do that's going to pay the bills? Cindy is very pragmatic about it. Also, the story about cutting half the employees, that was rough. Uh, And then also having to rehire a new team, that just sounds like crazy overwhelming to me. Uh, But clearly Cindy did it. And now she's, I don't don't know if she's doubled the size of her business by acquiring strong events, but she bounced back pretty quickly. But even with bouncing back quickly, she still said she didn't take a paycheck for two years. A super important thing Cindy was talking about a time tracker that every event she tracks the time. And I think that is so important because in a world where we need facts to sort of back up, like, why do I need pay more? Well, it's because we're doing X, Y, Z. Tracking timing as a designer is sort of difficult in the sense of we do it piecemeal here, there, and we just, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there. We don't really add that up. I think that tracking the hours is so important because it makes you realize that, oh, if I'm not going to get paid more, I need to get my hours down. But it's just so easy not to track them. But the fact that Cindy does it, you know, yes, she has a system in place. But I think as designers, we need to be doing that. So that way, when we're trying to ask for a higher fee or, or something like that, we're saying it because we have facts that say, no, we really do need this. We're not just asking for it because I want to eat more or I want to save some for retirement or something like that. Like we really are doing the thing and it's unsustainable if we don't get the higher pay. And I'm just applying it to here, beautiful, the Carol King musical. Uh, so I'm getting my highest fee that I've ever gotten. So $6,000. And yes, that's 1099. So after taxes, you know, have it roughly, but okay, maybe 4,000. <laughs> but let's go with the $6,000 number. I am out here for 170 hours and I have not tracked how long it took me to draft the show, blah, blah, blah. I don't have an assistant. Let's say 50 hours easily because uh, 30 of that I think was drafting alone. Um, and then there's meetings and then lots of emails that have been sent. Not to mention this show we did the past summer. So some of that work was prepped. And anyway, more of the story is 
easily 220 hours working on this show. So if I take that $6,000, sounds great. Divide that by the 220 hours and I'm down to $27 an hour, which again, not the worst thing in the world. But remember, this is the best fee I've ever made. I've never been paid more than this. I've only ever been paid less than this. So we're looking at $27 an hour for the, is the most I've ever been paid. Anyway, I'm just talking this all out to say if we as designers look at what we're, you know, and, and somebody, um, I'm going to get on the podcast, a director, uh, somebody sent me a TikTok or Instagram, something, um, but it was a director saying, look, I just had to turn down a job at a New York theater or a regional theater because they wouldn't pay me. And um, I just realized like, I can't work for $7 an hour, <laughs> whatever it was, when he broke it down. His shortcut that really actually helped me recently, he said, okay, so let's just say you want to make 50000 in a year or even 100000 in a year. So take your 100000 and divide that by, let's say, 50 weeks. There's 52, but let's say 50 weeks. So that means you need to make $2,000 a, a week. So then when you're looking at a show, if you're going to be a director working on a show for five weeks, you're like, why well, need $10,000? Or if you're a lighting designer and say, well, I'm going to be there checking for a week and then I need a prep week. So that should be 2000 a week. So that's $4,000. So you at least need $4,000 in order to make that all work. And if it's going to take more prep time, et cetera, then you need more money. So that's like a shortcut that I found very useful. I recently did a gig um, over at Arizona State University and I was trying to figure out what to charge because I'm trying to not like charge too much because it's a university, it was a university related event, but also I was like, it was above and beyond what I needed to do. And it was going to take me hours and days to go do this. So part of what I used to figure out what, what to charge was, well, how many weeks is this going to take? Like how much time am I going to have to put into it? And I sort of did that. So also (laughs) TMI here, but I'm getting paid $60,000 to teach at Arizona State University. So what I did was I took that 60000 and I roughly boiled it down to that's $1,000 a week. So then I said, well, I'm going to work two weeks on this project. So that's two weeks extra work that I'm doing. So that's $1,000 a week, $2,000. And then I landed at 1500 for whatever reason, for how many hours. But more of the story is I just took that. What's the yearly salary? How many weeks am I going to put into it? Two weeks. Okay, it should be two weeks of the pay. So um, now you know <laughs> way more about my life <laughs> and what I'm getting paid, but these are realistic numbers and I'm just being honest. So now you know some stuff, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that's good for us all to know. But um, I went on this little tangent just to say tracking the hours is important. And even if you're not going to, you know, do it to, but I, by the minutia of like, oh, I, I did 28 hours of drafting. I did seven hours of emails. I did uh, seven hours of revisions. Even if you're not going to do that, you can still say, okay, it's a week of tech, it's so at least a week of prep, and maybe a third week. You know, a broad strokes way, it's still very helpful. Okay, anyway, just sharing my like recent shortcut of like trying to figure out and justify. Because um, again, you're taking yourself out of the picture and you're saying, there is Ethan, the designer, doing XYZ. That's what he needs, needs paid. Okay, all right. I hope some of that was <laughs> clear. Or, But anyway, bringing that back to, to Cindy the example of the wedding planner where it was like, if you're charging $2,000 for a wedding, yeah, that sounds great. But guess what? You're using your entire weekend for that wedding. Plus, I don't know how many weeks you're prepping for that, but I guarantee $2,000 is is not enough for you to have a sustainable, enjoyable life and to take some time off and all that. So yeah, it sounds like 2000 is a lot, but the reality is you're putting in plenty and plenty of time and $2,000 is not enough. Anyway, um, 
Some financial news here. Uh, Amy Deluxe drew this to my attention that Mint.com is closing down, which we've talked about on previous episodes. I don't think it's that big of a loss because I actually left Mint a while back. I thought it was a great tool a decade ago, but um, I left and went to personal capital because Mint was not customizable enough. So I'm not really on Mint anymore. So whenever they close it down, the account will go down and that's fine by me. And then I will say I switched to personal capital, but I actually didn't quite onboard it completely. And I just keep track of my own net worth, et cetera, in an Excel document. And I only update it like once a year. But personal capital, if you go looking for it, is actually empower.com now. But it's much more customizable. Um, Mint is, is shifting everybody over to Credit Karma, but Credit Karma does not have all the features that Mint even had. So it's even less than Mint before. So I don't think many people are going to stick with that. One I've seen online that people are gravitating to is called uh, Monarch, monarchmoney.com. Um, I know nothing about it other than it seems like a good, a, be- a better version of Mint, and especially since Mint's going away. And you're going to be sad. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, next week, one point out, we're going to have a super cool episode. Carl Faber is guest hosting, and he gathered a bunch of line designers and some other artists to talk about EVs, electric vehicles, for those of you not up with the lingo. <laughs> so I selfishly asked Carl to do this episode because one, he made an amazing blog post that I will try to link in the comments here. Anyway, it was about his, what he's paying to have an EV basically. And I was like, this is an amazing blog post. It was really informative and really helpful. Um, when you're looking at thinking about like, am I going to save money on gas? Is it worth the price of the car? How much trouble is it? And also something I learned from his post is that if you're in lighting, you probably know a little bit about electricity, which means, one, you'll be more comfortable with an EV just by default, sort of knowing some shortcuts of like kilowatts and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not like super electrical, but like just working in like, you know, with electricity, you sort of know some things. Um, and you're also a little more comfortable with it. So you might be able to install parts or things on your own a little bit, which could save you a little bit of money. Anyway, that was a side note. But anyway... <laughs> I asked Carl because at the time that I asked him, I was interested in getting an EV because Nicole and I were going to need to get a car. We hadn't had one for a long time. And w- when we got rid of our last car, I, I had told Nicole, I was like, we're going to get an EV the next, you know, because technology is going to advance so much that by the next time we get a car, <laughs> I'm getting an EV. So I was hoping that Carl would get this episode done by the time we purchased the car. Now, we ended up having to do our own research and getting a car before <laughs> this episode came out. But this is why I was so interested in it, because I was like is it time for electric vehicles or are we going to need to uh, hold off until the technology is better, et cetera. So anyway, check back next week for that episode and those questions will be answered for you. Um, And if you're a patron, that episode is already in your podcast feed, but next week the video will come out and Carl did an awesome job editing the video. Best looking video episode we've ever had. (laughs) So um, if you want to know what Carl looks like and, or if you just want to see a really slick episode of artistic finance for video editing, uh, check it out. All right, and last reminder, which is LDI is less than a month away. That's in Las Vegas, uh, December 3rd at 11.15 a.m. We're recording a live episode of Artistic Finance. I'll be moderating um, a panel with Ebony Madry, Carolyn Wong, Danny Dutchman, and Ariel Benjamin, all amazing designers. Um, And we're going to talk lighting design tools and costs. And we might get Roma Flowers there, but she has a session right after, so I don't know if she's going to be able to make it work, but we're trying Uh, So anyway, hope to see you there. It's going to be a great panel. I love seeing everybody in person because like even right now I'm recording this, I'm just talking to a computer, (laughs) just talking to myself. So it's super cool when I actually get to see people um, who listen and or who are just interested in the topic and it's always fun. 
Okay, last thing, my dad joke to end the episode. Um, and this is in honor of all the talk about pandemic and COVID um, and the live event pause that, that we're in today's episode. Um, okay, so here we go. So during those couple of years of COVID, I did not make a single dad joke and there was just very little humor um, and it was a hard time, but it was a pandemic. That's it for today. <laughs> Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Music.